0: Welcome to Just a GP. I'm here with Charlotte and Beck, and today we're chatting to Charlotte as a secondary follow up to our quality episode that we did a couple of podcasts ago. And today we're actually going to talk about how, as an, an individual practitioner uh, working in a group practice or working on your own, how you can look at improving aspects of Your practice by using the concepts of what would you say Charlotte data and and stuff but we will start with our highlight of the week
1: oh well I'm happy to start Uh, my highlight actually was just last night because we had a Christmas end of year party for my practice and it was just a really really lovely evening there was about 40 people in one of the local pubs just down the road from my practice. It was a really lovely space that allowed us to sort of do that mingling before dinner and then we sort of sat around tables. Then we had some lovely speeches and then Santa Claus visited everybody. But it was just the opportunity to talk to every body about what it was like to be in the practice and sharing visions and goals about patient care as well as just sharing sort of a bit of joy of working together which was just lovely and just having all of the staff there and the reception staff coming and giving feedback about how much they enjoy working in the practice as well because of you know the things that we do it's just yeah it was very special
0: it's nice isn't it rounding out the year with a team building type approach and a celebration of the good
1: work that we do absolutely really nice moment
2: Sounds really lovely. I might follow up then with my highlight of the week, which is a combination of a past and a future highlight. (laughs) Um, I just picked up the documents for a holiday that I'm about to go on with myself and my family at the end of the year. And it's really nice to have everything in my hot little hands ready to go and also to reflect on how important it is to... Book in regular holidays and more than just a weekend away at a conference or a meeting or something else that really is actually work, not just time away from clinical work, but actually to have a proper holiday where you're not taking your laptop or your computer and actually getting away from everything else. So I'm very excited.
0: Where are you going?
2: We're um, going to the US. And we're going to New York to be very cold and then we're going to go to um,
1: Disney World with the kids. Sounds like a good adventure.
0: So my highlight of the week is purely clinical. I have a lot of eating disordered patients and the announcement in the last week that the number of sessions that will be available for them to access psychology from the usual 10 under better access to 40 and then dietitians 20 which under an epc referral would be capped at five has just been transformational for the future of the kind of work that i've been doing with these people and also for one particular practice that i work in where we do work quite close together in a multidisciplinary team and we were really excited that it was coming through and even though it's not going to be implemented until later on next year kind of like a little happy jump up and down moment.
1: Yeah, no, it was a very, very big happy jump up and down moment. I've, I I um, was really excited too about that announcement.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it'll be really great because what I think will happen is an onflowing of practitioners who are upskilling in treatment of eating disorders because there'll be that access. And so I think that although that's a huge gap in our health service in Australia at the moment, I do believe that this is a really huge step towards improving that gap.
1: Yeah, and hopefully more GPs will be interested in being involved more proactively, certainly where I am involved, where sort of the at Royal Prince Alfred has sort of helped with the coordination across the state of all the services. And, you know, there's very few GPs who are known to them, yet they're now very actively trying to seek them be to be part of the team conferencing so I've got several patients and I now am actually called in I just attend by through telephone to the team meetings about the patients and it's just been so helpful for me as well as the patients I'm sure.
0: Yeah and for anyone listening there's some online training that GPs can access through insideoutinstitute.org.au which was a previous resource that we shared but they now have online modules for health professionals to to do some training as well do
1: those points qualify for your um, mental health training ash
0: mm, good question charlotte i'm um, not sure but if you had level two training uh you could probably submit them as ongoing cpd even if it was something that you had to submit separately but I'm not sure.
1: Yep. Well, that sounds like a good option for those people who are interested.
0: Yeah. So today we wanted to pick your brains a little bit because you're um, a bit of a, what would you say, champion of quality in various areas of your work life, in your practice itself, in the PHN and in the college as well. And we know that you have such a wealth of knowledge about, what quality means and, and and what that looks like, and we wanted to drill down that little bit about what you know what could Beck and I do, what what could we do in our practices that might make that little step first, and how could we use that to encourage our colleagues to do similar things.
1: Thanks, Ash. That's a great sort of start to the conversation. I mean, if I sort of think back to when did I actually think about it myself, my aha moment was through the introduction to the idea of using data to actually understand what we're doing with when my practice joined the APCC program with the Improvement Foundation. And with that program, for me, one of the aha moments was I hadn't even thought about access which may or may not sound stupid because I'm sure there's people who haven't thought about access as well, but I hadn't actually thought that, that we actually have much say in how patients can come and make appointments or otherwise to the practice. And I'd certainly worked as a registrar where there were no appointments and I liked the idea of having a bit more control and say over what you were seeing but didn't really think that even with appointments you could control it. And so that sort of came back to, okay, so you can actually measure things and you can predict things, et cetera. But if I actually think about quality and what we do and we're seeing patients, one of the things that I'm really struck by is the quality of our record keeping, allowing us to then go back and say, well, am I doing a good job? And that aha moment came to me with my teaching of registrars because you know you do your own thing with your record keeping but when you have your registrars you also have to look at their files but they also look at yours and so you can start having these conversations that are a little bit more confronting and if you go back and do audits of your own files you can sort of see the things that you do or you don't record and then the ways in which you can ask the questions. So for instance you know, someone would ask me, how many of your patients smoke? Well, I initially would have had no idea. But of course, we've had a drive about recording smoking status. And I know that not everybody does it, but it's a really good thing to know how many of our patients are smoking. And do we actually have a a sort of a process of re-recording that and do we have the conversations? And you know, when you see evidence from researchers like Nick Soir that say all you need is a five minute chat or even less than five minutes about are you still smoking, are you ready to stop, and I can help you, is actually far more powerful than a half an hour or an hour of counselling with a counsellor for actually giving a patient the boot in the pants about stopping smoking. And to be able to sort of start doing that, the quality of the data of, well, how much am I recording that, is sort of crucial. Yeah,
0: so let's explore that for a little bit. Smoking is something that's quite easy for us to look at in general because it's one of the things that we are supposed to ask almost every consult, and I'm sure there's lots of things that we're supposed to ask every consult that we're or we're asked to ask every consult or suggested that we ask every consult. Let's go back a little bit of a step in... If you were in your clinic and there wasn't a culture around of, okay, for the next month, we're going to try and improve our recording of smoking. And in the new best practice update, you can click whether you've given brief interventional support as you're checking off the smoking history, which is really uh, useful. But before you get to that stage, if you're kind of sitting in your room and you're thinking, what is this idea about improving quality, how would you then go, where can I start? What do I start with?
1: Um, well, again, that's, that's a great question. There's a whole lot of different things in this. What, what is it that you view as quality? For me, as the individual GP sitting in the room, quality starts from me having a clinical file about a patient that I can hand over to you and have you have a good understanding of that person and their current healthcare needs without actually having to meet them. So, it actually gives you a little picture of who that person is. Now, if there's not much there, that, that's a good picture of saying, well, they don't actually have many healthcare needs versus, you know, more and more information. So, One of the games I play with a registrar is get them to open up the file of a patient that's about to come into the room that they haven't met before, because that's often a very common scenario, and get them to open it up and go through the file and give me a snapshot of who that person is looking like from The information that's in the file, through you know, so smoking is the basic, but you know, their alcohol, you know, do are they married? Aren't they married? Do they have a partner? What's their work? Have they had any significant past medical, sort of history things? And so, although that's of itself not quality, having that qualit that level of quality information in your file enables you to go in and use that and be informed in just meeting them in the first place. And a lot of us don't bother doing that. And I mean, I've seen that so many times and patients complain and say, well, you know, it's all and well to be in the same practice, but this doctor still ask me all this information as if they'd have no idea who I am, yet I've been coming here for 20 years. So how good a story does our actual file look like? And by doing that a few times, you start to get a feel for the things that actually help you do it and then start to inform what things you add into it.
0: Yeah, we mentioned it in a previous podcast. If you're looking at what is your patient population and what clinical issues that they have the most difficulty with or whether you're making any changes in terms of their health parameters, it's no point in writing it in the wrong place or not writing it at all because it won't be there for you to have a look at. And I guess it goes into that mantra that, probably comes up a a lot in in this discussion well if you aren't entering that information and you aren't writing it down how can you say that you're providing quality care if you've got no way of proving it?
1: Yep exactly and or if you're just doing it as free text in the first consultation or somewhere through the ability to go and find it is so tedious and it's not easily as I say, handoverable to that sort of whole concept of the of the the clinical handover, which is I'm not just taking care of it for me, because a lot of doctors will go, Well, it doesn't matter because it's just me who's looking after them. So I don't need to write those things down because I'll remember. It's like, well yes, but it's not just you in this day and age. This is about making sure that the information is safe for anybody to look after them at any time
0: and I think sometimes unexpectedly it won't just be you anymore whether that person moves to another clinic or you become unexpectedly ill and all your patients have to go to a new person there's an expectation as you say from the patients that all the data is there and if it's not there then that it's quite an awkward conversation you know oh it's in my record and you're like "Mm mm-hmm yeah (laughs) yeah it is uh (laughs) just let me uh find where that is And, and you know you might have to go through all the free texting to have a look and you actually find that even it's not there in the free texting and it's all this stuff that wasn't written down and it actually is really hard for handover and continuity as well so i guess that's a good answer is step one is to look at what are you entering and and how are you entering it and is it being entered in the right way so for example in the software that I use you can enter a reason for visit and when you enter the reason for visit you can then add whether that's you want to add that to the past history if you want to add it to a diagnosis if you want to include it in the summaries and send it to the e-health record and you can even add in details and I think sometimes the details are the most important aspect you know if you've got somebody who's got a skimmy heart disease or they've had a cabbage it's useful to write what hospital they went to and who did it or if they've recently had an echocardiogram it's useful to put in the the summary text of what their ejection fraction is or whether they've gotten an, any valvular abnormalities because it then highlights when they had the echo and what it was then or who did it and so it makes it a lot more rich in terms of someone looking at the file going oh when did you have your last gastroscopy or colonoscopy and it's there in the inactive past history items and it's got some information on what was there and you don't have to click into other areas or other letters of the the file to find it out it's kind of there in summary and it can be then put on referrals so it's a good good step to make in terms of making sure that you are actually entering the data in the in the in the spots that it's supposed to go in
1: yeah I couldn't have said it better myself ash and the more I the more you do it the more you start to love it and see how good it is even just for sort of like when you do the referrals the more notes you put into those sections as you were saying the better the referral is too because it also does for the the new gastroenterologist for instance actually has that back history of they've seen this person for this and this is their heart stuff and it doesn't just say they've got ischemic heart disease it actually gives them the nutty key information. And and I love doing that now. You know, yes, who's the specialist who I've referred them to? When are they due for their next colonoscopy or, you know, all of those sorts of things down there. And, you know, you can keep on updating it. and it's not onerous because it's so useful. And I think one of the things that is where electronic medical records become really sort of untidy is that people see it as a static thing and don't just go in and constantly tidy it up so it's that you know the review and getting rid of the things that you forget you know you pressed the wrong button so you put on a an antibiotic and it's a and it's a regular medication instead of it just being a one off so you actually have to go in and clear it out or you've still got the the steroid cream that was prescribed for somebody's dermatitis Two years ago, and it's still on, but they haven't needed it in that two years, you know. So it's sort of those sorts of cleanups of data as well. And the other thing I really like with the putting the data in, which I think really helps improve it at a a clinician level, is when we're doing the the letters and you're, you're in your inbox and you know, you get the letter from the specialist and they tell you the changes in medication and they give you some, you know, they'd really like to have a potassium rechecked in three months' time. And so now, and you may well be doing this already as well, but I certainly proactively now, every letter, any recommendation just gets put in straight away into the file. So the medications get altered. I'll do an action for whatever the blood test they're wanting or send off some results that they might have asked me to do.
0: Or you can add a past history even. You can kind of add the diagnosis if a diagnosis is made or if they've yep. if they've had a test.
1: Just had an operation.
0: Yeah, and if, if they've had an operation or if they've had a test that's come back with some gallstones you can put that into the record as well yeah
1: yeah and it's great because then when the patient comes the next time you may have sort of forgotten that you'd read that letter or that it was about them but the file's all up to date for you and patients they just love that like you know like someone who comes in two weeks after breaking an arm and I've already got it in their past medical history and what they're doing and they just sort of look at me stunned like oh how did it already get into my record and it's like well you know actually everybody was really good we got the discharge summary from the hospital and we put, pulled that information into your file and so they feel far better looked after as well and they feel like they're getting that quality care which really that's what's so important so it also helps that whole level of trust about what's happening around them to look after them better
2: so I guess you've answered my first question really well about how do we start collecting better data and what an individual clinician level that can do to improve my patients and myself and my essentially safety and knowledge of my patients. My next question I'm really interested in is then what do we do next? So we've got this good resource now of quality data and good documentation at a practice level. What's what? Are our options with that? What can we do from here, and what's useful about that at a practice level?
1: There are two things that you can probably do in that BEC. One is just on an individual basis. So it may well be that you're starting to think, look, I'm not all that sure that I'm doing really good care for my diabetes patients. You know, you've gone to a, a CPD event and you realise that there's a sort of a recommendation that you haven't been doing, for instance. And then you go, where do I start and what would I do? And so one of the things you can do then is do an individual sort of audit improvement um, project for yourself. So you can actually do a a search in your uh, software, Best Practice Medical Director, allow you to do a search for all the patients that you've seen, for instance, with a diagnosis of diabetes in the last 12 months. So you could pull out all of those files and then maybe just do an audit and see whether you've actually done whatever it is that you've wanted to do and then maybe set a target or ask the practice nurse to actually bring them in or make sure that when they all come in next time that they all have their blood pressure and their um, urine checked. I mean, I think the classic one of that is say our practice recently has done this for the renal failure patients because we were aware that we actually hadn't got a clear understanding within the whole practice as to who everybody was who had impaired renal function so we actually came up with a coding for how we would code both stage three and stage four and then we developed a protocol about what tests that they needed to do to just monitor them and also a protocol for who would actually need to be referred to a renal physician. Now you can do that on an individual basis or you can do it as at a practice level like we've done for that. We actually contacted the pathology company and asked them to send us a list of everybody who had a GFR less than 60, an EGFR less than 60, and also a list of those who'd had urinary albumin so that we tried to make sure that we didn't miss anybody. And then we did a targeted program of making sure that all of those patients actually had a Coded diagnosis, and then put in actions for them coming in and having urinary albumins and and or blood pressures, etc., according to it, the protocol. But we did it step by step so that it was doable. We asked a renal physician to come in. We also pulled down the current guidelines. We got one of the registrars to do a presentation on what we should be doing, and so everybody in the practice all together actually came up with the protocol and the steps that we do it and everybody had a go at each of those steps. And I really like the
2: idea about it being, you mentioned it earlier about a game that you play with either yourself or a challenge that you do for the workplace to be able to be working together and actually achieving something as a team, which also brings in really nicely wellbeing and doing things that are purposeful and for a reason. And I like the idea of introducing then research and an audit into your practice as well. That sounds really interesting on lots of fronts.
1: Yeah, and it's good too. You can give those measurable outcomes too and you give reports back. So it's like, okay, this is is what we set ourselves to do and this is where we are and how can we do better and keeping it at the front of mind. So
0: that's probably a really nice explanation of the kind of culture that if you create this in your practice you could eventually achieve what you've got the whole team working on a specific area that they want to improve and it's not not just an individual person in their room doing it but it's all the the gps learning about what's the current recommendation but then also all implementing it it's about using the allied health in the practice to Perhaps do some health education or coaching of the patients, and them being upskilled as well. And I, I really liked how you recognised the utility of using the pathology providers that you use as a resource, because they can very easily audit a lot of their data, and and perhaps that is not as easy to do from a results perspective, depending on the program that you have or the access that you have to auditing. So I really like that. That could be a really nice. to aspire to and from from a smaller level i guess i could give an example of one of the doctors in our practice said i really want to make sure that everybody who's ever been identified as having hep c in our practice has been treated and has a negative viral load so she went out and basically just said to all the doctors do you mind i'm going to the whole practice, I'm going to find out all the patients who've been identified as having a positive hepatitis antibody for hep C. And I'm then going to provide you a list of your patients that have been identified as having hep C and whether they've had a negative result come back or whether they have been treated. And if they have been treated, have we made sure that we've followed up and ensured that their result was negative? And if we have, identified their result as negative have we then put it in their file and so she did a process where she did the audit she found the information she gave the information to the individual gps to do themselves to either she said these patients need to have their hep c reordered and can you put it in their file and then she then followed up with those gps and made sure that they did it as well so instead of doing all the work herself she kind of was the a bit of the champion of this is what I'd like to do, and I'd like to make our practice hep C free. And so I'm going to make sure that all the people who've previously identified as that. And then she assisted the GPs to do the project as well and made it really easy for them to participate so that at the end she could then feedback and go, great, all of our patients that have now been treated, or there's we only had this many that we needed to do. And the second stage of that particular project would be then identifying the people at risk. Of hepatitis C, making sure that we're testing those and treating those ones as well. So you can start kind of smaller, and then as people realise how how interesting and useful it is, they can start they can start to kind of expand more at a uh, multiple GPs working on it or at a practice level.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. And we we did a very very similar project with the rollout of the Hep C treatment for you know, at our hospital and being able to do it from the general practice. But we also use the pathology for that to make sure we hadn't missed anybody for the hep C. And again, it shows where the usefulness of the notes part of the hep C label is. So you can actually put in PCR negative on this date so that it's really easy for someone opening up the file to be able to do that.
0: Yes. And we, she couldn't have searched for Uh, hepatitis C positive patients if that wasn't recorded in their past history. So if she hadn't recorded the hep C positive in the past history then it wouldn't have come up in the data tool. Um, My understanding is that it has to have been entered in there. So like you said, contacting the pathology providers and making sure that you're getting the patients that haven't had that entered in the clinical record also helps you to close that loop of we probably should put that in the file and we should put it as inactive and we should then put a detail in that it's come back as negative and then perhaps consider having that conversation with the patient about whether they want that on their shared health summary and to go on referral letters and to go to the health record or whether that's something that, that they want to keep confidential with the practice now that they're treated and, and no longer positive.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And it opens up some really good conversations, doesn't it? And so that goes the same for any of those sorts of things that you can do. So for instance, we did, let's sort of think about flu vaccination. We did and continue to do each year now, a program of aligning atrial fibrillation screening with our over 65 flu vaccination. So it sort of ran a double whammy from my perspective. So my passion was about being able to pick up people who are at risk for stroke and try and do some preventive care with the atrial fibrillation screening. We had access to an app and tool that does the mono ECG that allowed us to be able to do that and at the same time it was sort of being able to do a campaign with our over 65s to actually come in and do their flu vaccination. So we actually sort of did a much more proactive campaign and we continue to do so in the designing of that sort of we figured as a practice that it was a really good double whammy concept and so now we have this much richer data about who comes in for their vaccination who are over 65 we know the percentage of people who do and we're all also able to sort of know that we're we're sort of proactively screening everybody in that age group for AF and
0: so do the people that have been identified as af on the on the app then made an appointment with their the gp and and to have a formal ecg done at the practice and and discuss their risk factors and do their chads vas score about their risk
1: of stroke absolutely so when we designed the screening program we had to design well what happens when you get a either a what if so a, you know i'm, I'm not sure of that they do or they don't and that comes up with a they have AF. So and with that was a protocol about having an ECG and having the protocol about what you do, who gets contacted, who's responsible for following it up, and all the tools to actually assist in the sort of the diagnosis and management. So again it was a great opportunity to actually upskill all of us in what were we doing in terms of when we did diagnose someone with AF anyway and any of these things are great opportunities to sort of make sure we're all on the same page, that we're doing it in the same way, and we're basing it on the current evidence. And some of you may or may not know in August, there were new guidelines that came out for atrial fibrillation management and the tools that you use and the CHADS-VASC, which now doesn't use gender as part of your knowing how to go forward with, with treatment. So again, it's sort of been good topical thing that we're able to sort of instantly make sure that we were aligning with the new guidelines and making sure we're all comfortable with what that looked like. And sometimes that's not so easy because we have some quite hearty conversations. Just this week, we had a conversation about what our HbA1c's testing was like for patients who had both diabetes and cardiovascular disease and we did we did a measure of how many of them had had were up to date with their HBA1Cs and where they fell. so how many were less than seven. what we were doing about it and it was really interesting just having the debate about well should that be being done every six months or should it be being done every 12 months and so then a couple went off and did some more research and have come back with more conversations about it so it's sort of really nice because you end up having these sort of conversations that sometimes when you're just doing things on your own you don't really necessarily think about and I love the fact that we then all come to the same sort of collective decision you know you might Some people might not 100% agree, but by and large, we all come up with the same clinical decision-making and offering of that same level of quality care to all the patients in the practice.
0: Yeah, And it creates this culture of learning and continuing professional development within that.
1: Absolutely. And it's fun too, and very respectful because everybody can add to that conversation because the registrars are obviously having all of that learning, like it's all fresh, and you can be challenged as an older GP it's like oh really has that changed I didn't realize that let's let's have a look at that and why has it changed and what does that mean and do I need to go back and have a look at what I've been doing with my patients in the last 12 months and should I call anybody in to to do something differently
0: so I'm interested in once you've done a project What is the continuation after the project finishes? Do you have a process by which you kind of revisit your old projects and make sure that you're still doing the things that you were doing before?
1: That's a great question. Yes, so the whole sustainability, isn't it? You know, it's all and well to get you up to speed now, but will that keep going and what do I do? Yes, so we have a process of every quarter generating reports on data and so by and large those reports that we generate as a practice are based around things that we've been doing and still have on the agenda but may not be active so that we can make sure that we're still at the very least maintaining where we've improved up to and not dropping back and if we do drop back then we sort of bring it back to everybody to give a bit of a kick starter again. We certainly find that with changeovers of registrars that sometimes we forget that we need to upskill the registrar in some particular things that we, we might be doing. It's really quite hard. It's sometimes overwhelming, particularly for a, a GPT-1 who hasn't had to manage software at all and all the things they have to learn, where to put things and this, that and the other. And because we are such a structured practice in many respects you know we've got some really nice protocols and that's good because I've got lots of really clear I've got a great handbook that helps them do it and we've got some really good structured learning modules that we do with them but sometimes some of those things get forgotten about because they're a newer project and so then you just have to remind yourself up that's we just have to get everybody back back on the page for doing that particular thing
0: And do the GPs working in the practice feel overwhelmed about the amount of things that they need to do once the improvement quality has been done?
1: Look, I think from what my conversations with GPs all around the place, I don't think the GPs in my practice feel any more overwhelmed than GPs feel in any place. But what I think they do feel is they feel more secure in knowing that they are assisted in what's doing because we try and do everything as streamlined as possible And we have a reason why we're doing it and they see the benefit of what they're doing that they may not have had to do in another practice. So there's a sense of we all feel overwhelmed by the amount of work we have to do. That's just par for the course. But if at least you feel like you're safe in, if you've set up a system that means that you're not forgetting to do things and things are done and someone's there behind your back to catch things, and there is a sort of a clear protocol of, of how it gets done and the nurses are assisting you as well as the practice staff. Then I think some of that whole thing of being busy rather than being overwhelmed. But I, I go back to that thing about, yes, it's, it's really important to make it fun and not a, an onerous task and to actually discover what I call the, the, the love and the joy of your data you know, to actually make it so that you enjoy doing these things rather than going, oh, you know, oh, this is another another 25 clicks that I've got to do. Um, and I say that because um, just this week I was with the Cancer Institute in New South Wales where they're trying to look at how do we improve cancer prevention uptake in New South Wales. And they were saying that there were GPs who were complaining that with the new... Uh, c- cervical screening stuff with I think medical director, there were twenty five clicks that you have to do to get everything into the um sort of the recorded properly and it's like that's a real barrier, isn't it? If you're having to do twenty five extra clicks that you didn't have to do, yet I sort of question, you know, whether you really that's where the software needs to be able to assist us. You know, as much of that should be able to be automatically pulled into it and all you should be doing is doing a click-click, yes, this is where it needs to go type process.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me the concept of an, an internal audit on a topic that you're interested in and an external audit that shows you your blind spots because often the times when I've done an audit is because I had to do it as part of a CPD activity and it was one of those things that I was like, oh, I have to do this audit. And... But it, it ends up inherently useful because it highlights something that you either weren't, you thought you were doing well but you weren't doing well or you weren't documenting that you were doing and it really does help to kind of feel like you're you are asking those questions or it, it prompts you to ask the questions that you thought you asked all the time but you then start to realise that you just wanted to ask all the time but that you didn't actually ask that question all the time. So I find the the external... Um, highlighting of the blind spot really useful. But I guess if you're starting out in terms of the beginning, finding something that you are interested in and seeing what you'd like to do better is a good way to get the taste of what's fun about it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so nice to not just be being told what to do, um, to be able to actually have some feeling that this is because this is what we see it's really useful um, but at the same time that whole accountability I agree with you entirely when I did these the externally driven ones I was a little shocked that I wasn't as good as I thought I was and that was a really good lesson to say you know actually where we can always do better um, but at the same time there's often a reason why we're not as good as what an external person might think we should be. So you know, when we should, I don't think we should ever be achieving a hundred percent of of adherence to a guideline, for instance, because that there would definitely mean that we're not being patient centred. Because you and I and Beck will all know that no guideline fits every single patient, and it is a guideline because that's what it is. It's a guideline, and it's our role to manoeuvre around the guideline and actually deliver the best patient-centred care that we can for that patient according to their needs.
0: So I guess we'll round up there because we've been talking for a little while. Thank you, Charlotte.
1: Thanks, Ash. It's been, been fun.
0: Yeah. So Rebecca, what was your resource of the week?
2: Um, my resource of the week, we're talking about guidelines. So I'm going to talk about the um, PCOS guidelines. And it's actually the first time that Australia has had their own guidelines on polycystic ovarian syndrome. And they were released a few months ago. Um, and I usually access them through the Jean Hales website, which if you haven't been on, I'm going to double up and give you two resources because their her website their website is amazing. Um, we'll attach it to our show notes, but you can access the guidelines through their website and also have a look at their website while you're there.
0: And Charlotte?
1: My resource of the week is one that I've just found out about myself this week. And it is called Advanced it's a resource and teaching for GPs, well, actually anybody involved in looking after people who are likely to die soon. And Hammond Care have developed it as a resource. And it's actually got a whole suite of sort of tools with it. And it's being launched very shortly as a sort of a whole ALM teaching program with sort of a whole lot of resources about how to both assess the patient and also too about, say, for instance, in the very first place, getting you to ask what we call the, the unexpected question. It's like, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next 12 months? And if it's a yes, then you there's sort of one approach to how you plan for their care versus the person who you're not going to be surprised about making sure you've covered off all the aspects of their palliative care so it's called the advanced project and you can actually find the resources if you actually go to the hammond care news website you'll actually it gives you the link to it's called the advanced au.
0: i've found it on yeah the advanced
1: Yep. cool. And it's one of the best sets of resources for both giving you a number of tools for assessment and just really good advice about the questions that you maybe should be asking and the resources that you can access in looking after patients at this stage of life. That
0: really works well with my resource, which I came across through, I think, a n- newsletter, but it's called Pally Meds. It's an app. And it's produced by nps in combination with caring at home so it's a particular organisation and they've teamed up with nps medicine wise and created this app and it's really cool because on the home page you can either search by symptom or search by medicines and it's got information on the on the home page about the app and then the medical management at the end of life what's off label use of medications and medico legal issues and then support for carers managing subcut medicines as well as state and territory contacts So, really cool holistic kind of resource not just about the medications but when you do actually go in and look at the medicines for example you can click on metoclopramide injection and you select the patient's symptom and then so if you select it for nausea and vomiting it then has the doses for anticipatory prescribing regular prescribing and then has information on the um, main contraindications or specific indications to think about information on the symptoms and then whether it's TGA approved or PBS listed and how many packs it comes in. So really useful for when you're visiting somebody at home or visiting someone in a facility, it's probably got more information that's relevant compared to the medical software in terms of what you need to know specifically in one whole resource because then you don't have to click on the the MIMS and then look in ETG or uh, you you can kind of have it there and then and it's quite an easy reference resource. I really like it.
1: Excellent. Well, that's probably where we can sign off and say looking forward to next episode.
0: Hmm. Which will be probably next year.
1: Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, have a great festive season, everybody. You too. Welcome to 2019. (laughs) All
0: right. Bye-bye. Okay.
1: Bye.